Welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast, and I am joined this week by the legendary Tom Bones Malone. Tom, I am so honored to be with you today. A huge, huge fan of, of you over, over the decades. So uh, thanks for being I'm with very, me. I am very honored that you asked me to be on your show. Oh, man. You know, uh, the people that, that I hold in high esteem hold you in high esteem. So uh, therefore, you know, even though we've, we've never met before today, I do feel like I know you because, you know, I've talked to so many people and I've, I've listened to your music over the years. Uh, and I'm really interested in this. And, and for those of you who uh, don't know who Tom is and you're going, why do you have a guy named Bones on the broadcast? He's not a trumpet player. Yes, he is. Besides playing trombone and saxophone and flute. And he's a heck of a trumpet player. And... Um, Great arranger, and uh, obviously, besides being a player, has uh, as an arranger has wor- and performer has worked with some of the greatest trumpet players uh, of our time. So uh, I'm really interested in, in getting into some of the stuff. So, uh, Tom, welcome, and uh, let's, let, I just want to start at the beginning because you went to uh, went to college, and you were also a psychology major. You you minored in music, is that correct? Um, I, I started off in music at uh, University of Southern Mississippi mm-hmm. and uh, as a music major. Now, I had started playing professionally when I was 14 on the saxophone. And um, uh, some, some kids, high school kids, wanted to start a rock and roll band. And I got out my trombone and I got out my trumpet. And they, they, they said, you know, it's, and I said, what's up? And they said, you, you don't have trombones and rock and roll bands. This is 1961. Right. So, so I said, well, what am, what am I supposed to play? I want to be in the band. I want to hang with the guys. I want to meet girls. So uh, uh, they said, you got to play saxophone. So my friend, uh, these guys were setting up in my living room and uh, you know, we're going to start a band. My, my best friend in, in high school was there where he had an alto and a tenor. So he started showing me how to play tenor right there. And I, and I started working on that. But I, that day, you know, I said, uh, I said to the guys, it says, why isn't the trombone a rock and roll instrument? You know, and they said, uh, they, they didn't know, but ever since then, I thought that, uh, you know, it should be. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I also, I also played trumpet and, um, my first big time gig actually was, uh, playing lead trumpet with Brenda Lee in Jackson, Mississippi. Wow. I was the only guy that could hit the high notes. <laughs> in the book. So I hitchhiked, I didn't have a car, I hitchhiked 85 miles, uh, up, up to Jackson, Mississippi six nights in a row and went to college during the day. Okay. At the time, at the time I was going to college at university of Southern Mississippi, I had started arranging music when I was 13. So uh, when I got to, when I got to college at university of Southern Mississippi, Hattiesburg, um, I took a course called music theory 101. And uh, so I answered all the questions for a couple of weeks. And then the teacher took me out in the hall and he says, you don't have to come to class anymore. You get an A. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And then he, taught me how to copy music professionally on Oslid reproduction paper with a, with an ink pen. Uh-huh. And he hired me to copy his symphony. He had um, written a, uh, he was working on his PhD at uh, Indiana university in composition. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I made a little money actually copying uh, uh, music for him. And, and it was a good skill to have right. uh, when you're, if you're breaking into a town, you know, it's a nice to have some backup skills. So that really helped me out a lot. Uh, so, I think I played uh, the first year in college. I think I played second alto in the stage band, and then uh, the second year, 
I played uh, lead trombone and I wrote some arrangements. And we went to the Mobile Jazz Festival in the spring of 1967. So um, I, meanwhile, after that theory uh, class thing that happened, uh, I changed my major to psychology. So I, I, I transferred to North Texas State after hearing the North Texas band at the Mobile Jazz Festival, spring of 67. Right. Uh, I, I played some solos and, and we played some of my arrangements. The North Texas band was there with Lou Marini and he, we, uh, they played some of his charts and he played some solos. And so we met and Lou says, man, says you should really transfer to North Texas State next year. So I did. I started in the fall of 67, my junior year. I, I uh, transferred into North Texas State and uh, it was a very challenging situation to say the least. Uh, oh, wow. The, the lead trumpet player had just gotten off the road with Stan Kenton, <laughs> as well as the drummer. Oh. I used to, trumpet, with, trumpet player was uh, Jay Saunders, legendary oh, teacher. Yeah. He played on several, like eight, played lead on eight Kenton albums. <laughs> and, uh, let's see, uh, Ed Sof, the drummer, he'd also gotten off, just gotten off the road with uh, Stan Kenton's band. Right. And, uh, so these are the guys I'm playing with every day. Oh, my. And, uh, and they would, they whipped us into shape. You know, they would say, uh, Look, you know, you should play this more like this, and 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 so it was a good learning experience for me. And Lou Marini was in the band, uh, Dr. Tom Boris, uh, Gary Grant, uh, Sal Marquez, uh, Bruce Fowler, uh, J- Jimmy Clark. Uh, it was just a holy cow! Uh, oh my God, yeah. And uh, the second year I was there, uh, Dean Parks was uh, lead alto, clarinet, and flute who became a studio guitar player in Los Angeles. I didn't uh, know that he was a, he was a sax player. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he was really good too. Yeah. He taught me how to play electric bass actually. Um, David Hungate was jazz trombone in the um, two o'clock band. He moved to LA and became the bass player with Toto. Right. Yeah. Man. So there was all kinds of guys like that at the school. So, I mean, it was really, even though I was majoring in psychology, all I did was hang out with musicians and, and play gigs to, to send myself to school. I didn't have any money. So, uh, great, great situation there. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, yeah. I, but I learned so much. Most of my uh, playing knowledge was like hanging out with people and talking about playing and actually sitting next to somebody and listening to them play. That's where I, mm. that's where I really learned about stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, how to play, uh, uh any instrument. Yeah. So I remember one time in the rehearsal, Jay Saunders, uh, he's, he, you know, he stops the band and he says, says, Tom, he says, you should, you should play that more like Jim Trimble on uh, Buddy Rich album. And I said, I, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I never heard the album. I don't know who he is, you know? So he says, man, look, don't you come over to my place and we'll dig some sides tonight. And so from then on, every night, Gary Grant and I would go over to uh, Jay Saunders house and listen to music. Oh, you know, man. I never recorded by albums. And anyway, he had this great selection. He had every um, great jazz, uh, big band, great jazz, like Miles Davis, Freddie Hubbard, uh, <laughs> Dizzy Gillespie. So we'd go over there and hang out and listen. And uh, and he'd, uh, uh, he, he just, I just learned so much about big band playing, different styles of playing. You know, there's a certain Kenton vibrato that you use. There's a certain... Uh, 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 you, you know, you can, you should be able to tell whether the band is West coast or East coast by the time feel like all, all yeah. kinds of stuff. I learned so much from Jay Saunders. Uh, he was like, uh, my music teacher mm. and, uh, you know, I can't thank him enough. We're still friends. Mm-hmm. I think he retired from North Texas, but, uh, 
amazing, amazing guy on many levels. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that I think more than anything else is something that's been missing. And obviously it's been missing during during this COVID era. But that ability to just be immersed in the the culture of music and being yes. around greats and uh, you know, there, there's always uh, that kind of level of, of everyone's trying to push each other a little bit further uh, to, to help it along, help them along. And that being in that, that level of community where, where you've got someone like a Jay Saunders who's really trying to help you to develop as a player and, and you know, Gary and, and everybody else, that's just, that's phenomenal. And oh, yeah. Gary, know, Gary Grant, by the way, you know who Gary Grant is. Oh, right? yeah, I know, I know yeah, Gary. <laughs> Jerry, he was lead trumpet with the Jerry Horns yeah. for 3,500 records. And uh, uh, anyway, he was my roommate in college. And uh, I learned a lot from, about playing the trumpet from him, too. Mm. Because he, you know, he practiced all the time. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, shortly after I got, I, I had become a contractor around uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, when I was at Southern Miss. I started contracting for uh, uh, Warren Covington and the Tommy Dorsey bands. So. Mm-hmm. I called Warren when I got to North Texas and I said, Warren, I'm in, I'm in Denton now. He said, great, you'll be my contractor. And he gave my name to all kinds of uh, other, other um, artists. There was a lot of big band ghost bands out there at the time. Right. You know, uh, uh, Warren had the Tommy Dorsey ghost band. Um, uh, Tex Benneke had the Glenn Miller ghost band. So he started giving my name out to people in New York that contracted uh, gigs like that. One nighters. You'd show up. We would, I'd get a band from North Texas. We'd drive 350 miles to Houston, do a one night or four hour gig, no rehearsal. Yeah. And this, this is where I put myself through college. I was, I was contracting and, uh, and there was, there were guys in North Texas that could sight read music, you know, play it right the first time. Right. So uh, that, uh, and then um, somebody gave my name to some people in Detroit and uh, next thing I know, uh, they, uh, they called me up and said, uh, we need, 11 horn players to do a three-day tour. Uh, it's going to be uh, Dallas, Shreveport, and Houston. Uh, we're going to um, we're going to bring a rhythm section from Detroit, and uh, it's uh, <coughs> Martha and the Vandellas, uh-huh. the Supremes, and the Temptations. Oh man! Yeah, 1969. This was uh, Cloud Nine was their hit single. Right, right. This was before it was uh, Diana Ross. And the Supreme, right. just the Supremes. the Supremes, right? Later in my career, I played on a lot of her solo albums that were recorded in New York. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, that that little mini tour uh, blew my mind. It just like I, I couldn't believe how great that uh, the, the rhythm section they brought from Detroit was ridiculous. Oh, so yeah. that led to another gig with Marvin Gaye, uh, you know, a few months later, and that um, I, and I contracted Eleven Horns to play with Little Stevie Wonder when he was sixteen. This is uh, at um, <clears throat> Albuquerque and uh, El Paso. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I was—I actually played trumpet on the gig. You know, I was contracting, so I—I I, I would play, you know, bass trombone, trumpet, uh, barry sax. It didn't matter uh, if I could get a good trombone player. I'd play trumpet. And, you know, it didn't matter. Uh, so I, I was actually a trumpet player with um, Little Stevie Wonder, and uh, he took me in as a friend. He was like, uh, "Wow!" He says, uh, "Man," he says. At the time, he was just recording songs that were written by the Motown staff writers right. in Detroit. Mm-hmm. So uh, he says, I'm writing my own songs, man. You want to check it out? And he had a, a sophisticated portable cassette machine and some good headphones. So mm-hmm. I, I put them on it. 
and it just, it, the stuff was so great. And I said, who played on this? He says, I played everything. Yeah, Stevie. Bass, drums, guitar, uh, organ, piano, and all vocals. Yeah. And so that was, that reinforced me a bit. You know, well, if he can do it, I can do it. I, well, I, can't, I can play all the instruments. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, I got to play with Stevie many times in my career. Uh, on, on Saturday Night Live, on uh, Letterman, uh, uh, TV special on the White House lawn one time, a very special Christmas Five. Uh, and uh, we did Stevie's uh, This Christmas with Macy Gray. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're on the set, and um, uh, the director says, we're going to take a little break to change the, uh, the lighting setup. Band, don't, don't leave. Just stay in place. So Stevie starts playing giant steps on the keyboard. Da 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 and then he starts blowing on it and he's all over the song and uh director says cut okay let's go back to work but uh you know everybody thinks of Stevie Wonder's being like he's just a R&B guy no he can play anything he's a super genius and he Stevie always remembers me when I run into him uh down the road you know like this is like more than 50 years later um Last time I saw him was on the Letterman show, uh, 2014, 2015. We did I Wish. I wrote, wrote a chart for him, and uh, we backed him up. And I ran into him in the elevator, and I said, Stevie, it's Tom, the trumpet player from Albuquerque. And he says, it's nice to see you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, man. That, that, you know, th- right there, you know, that, that, that story just kind of goes to show um, that you never know what one thing will lead to. And, you know, I, I've had this conversation recently with, with a number of people, both in, in the music world and in, in the, the business world. Like, you never know what you're doing right now, how that's going to affect your future. And so when you come into any situation, you always need to be your best and do your best because even if it's not your ideal situation, that could be the stepping stone to the gig that you always dreamed of getting. So don't blow anything off. And that's that's just I think in your career, I mean, as as you look at, you know, just that that little story and see how some of this has come full circle and how those roots supported you and created this very, very um uh, strong uh, career for you uh, and given you the ability to touch uh, musically, to touch so many people uh, across generations and across genres. Um, and it all comes back to, to that first kind of, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with Lou asking you to, to come to, to North Texas state and all those relationships that just start to blow up out of there. Change the rest of my life. Big time transferring to North Texas because the people I met there, I keep running into, you know, during the rest of my life. And, uh, uh, it just opens, uh, if you're going to be a professional musician, you don't want to turn down gigs. Well, you know, I I don't know how to play Latin music. So I I guess I can't do this one. Oh, I don't know how to play Jewish music. So I guess I can't do this gig. Uh, no, you want to be able to play, you know, classic. You want to be able to play anything. I, you know, I played with symphony orchestras. I played, uh, uh, Latin. I played on all the Fania records, salsa records in New York, 1974, 75, 76. <clears throat> Barry Rogers was the Latin trombone player. He was actually the first Latin trombone player in New York. And uh, he brought me into Fania records and he said, look, he says, guys, um, 
I'm getting some better work now, so uh, you should hire this guy to be your trombone player. And he showed me everything there was to know about, um, you know, playing Latin music. I had actually started playing with Ismael Rivera mm -hmm. in New York. Yeah. Just somebody asked me to sub on trumpet one night and boom. And now, now I'm playing music where the bass does not play one. Yeah. You know, you, you gotta like, so, uh, and I, I didn't, I just jumped in there and I learned how to play that style of music. And, uh, I made my living for a few years doing that, that sort of thing, yeah. at least a year and a half playing in casinos. Uh, I went to the International Salsa Festival with Ismael Rivera in 1975, Caracas, Venezuela. Oh. We won third place. Yeah. Really? And, uh, no, I, I, uh, I, I would play trumpet or trombone, whatever you needed. Mm -hmm. I didn't care. Uh, but he was the first salsa singer. The first salsa band was Cortijo Isocombo. Mm -hmm. Cortijo was a Cuban conga player who moved to Puerto Rico and he started this band. And my God, uh, the whole thing just... It was really booming in New York in the seventies. The whole salsa, salsa music scene. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. And and there's the again. There's another great. I mean, there's so many lessons that I I've already gotten out of this, and I know there's going to be more to come. But you know that that one. It's the the willingness to play whatever musically, but also that the attitude that you have of you know, hey, you know, you need me to play trumpet. You need me to play trombone you play saxophone you know you need me to write a chart you need what what do you need uh as opposed to i only do this or i only want to do this uh, it sounds to me like what you want to do is you want to play music you want to you, you want to enjoy yourself in that in the expression of that art form and how that manifests itself is less important than the fact that you get to do something that you love my attitude is that i can do anything that's it. That's my attitude. Boom. That's a great attitude to have. Yeah. And if you don't have it, you'll never be able to do it. You know, if you and don't I mean, have that. If you don't, yeah. if you, if you, if you think you're going to hit the note, you will hit it. If you have some doubt, well, gee, I don't know if I can hit that note. You're going to, you're going to miss it. You're going to clam it up. And so, uh, that my attitude is I'm going to hit the note. Uh, other, uh, well, let's see. I got, I took Chuck Winfield's place with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, 1973, playing trumpet, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and uh, got to play with Lou Soloff, uh, who yeah. was a great influence on me. Oh my God! Uh, some, you know, I remember the first gig I did with him. You know, I, it was it was pretty brutal. And towards the end of the gig, you know, I was like, uh, "Oh man, I got I got to like uh, I got to really start breathing here." And uh, Lou, he would get stronger as the gig went on. He would just like hit higher notes. And he got more ridiculous as time went on. So I, I learned an awful lot from him. Uh, another trumpet gig I had was uh, the original horn section on the CBS Orchestra, uh, Dave, Late Show with David Letterman. It was just two horns. It was me on trumpet and Bruce Kapler on tenor sax. And suddenly there's an F sharp in the song and then it ends on a high F. And uh, so uh, I, uh, you know, I, I did my lip slurs and stuff and, and got a special mouthpiece and uh, bang. You know, my attitude was that I can do this. Yeah. And Paul wanted me in the band, too. We were old friends already from many things, many events. So uh, uh, that was a great experience. After after three or four years, uh, uh, Paul hired a full-time trumpet player named Al Chez. So then I went more to uh, playing trombone, uh, Barry sax, tenor sax, second trumpet, uh, 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 flute, piccolo, whatever they wanted. Right. Yeah. Well, that, man... Again, I'm just I, I keep getting blown away by by these things because there's there, 
your you know people look at, at at your career and they might go well it's kind of a storybook career uh you know you've been in these kind of all these high profile gigs um but i i'm i'm a firm believer that you know the the idea of luck luck is when uh preparation meets opportunity and you know you were prepared you know and so when when an opportunity came up you were prepared not only in your technical skills but you were prepared with the attitude that you needed to have to go into those gigs which is you know if you have to learn something new you'll learn something new and you know that you can learn it because you know you've learned so much in the past so you you know what it takes to learn something new and to attain a new level of skill and i think sometimes we get uh especially uh you know uh, I, I hate to say the young generation can since you know i'm, I'm feeling like the old man sometimes um, but some, I think, I'm, I'm, I'm seven, I'm going to be 74 next month. Yeah. And that you don't look a day over. I won't, I, I won't even say what that you look younger than me. So, you know, I, I feel like, I feel like I'm 18. Yeah. Well, there you go. And it, you know, the, the old saying that, you know, you're as young as you feel, I, I think it's, you're as young as you think, you know, and as oh. long as you keep your mind young, you will be young. I got some, I have some advice for any, if we have any younger people in the audience today, I have some advice too. Uh, the, the thing that will carry you further in life, in music or any career, is be nice to everybody. Now, I know that, that, I know that sounds very simple and straightforward, but I mean, if, if, if somebody is from a different country, be nice to them. If somebody speaks a different language, be nice to them. Somebody's a different religion from you, be nice to them. Somebody has a different color skin than you. Be nice to them. Uh, you never know who's going to open a door for you in your life, and you can't. So you can't diss anybody. You got to be nice to everybody. Yeah. And also, like, um, so a uh, professional musician. Like, let's say you uh, you you finish college and you decide you're going to move to town to be a professional musician. You're going to move to New York. You're going to move to Los Angeles. You're going to move to uh, Nashville. Uh, first of all. Somebody already has all the gigs, right? right. So uh, the only way you're going to get involved in the scene is uh, you're going to some somebody that already has the gigs is going to have to hear you play and think that they can send you into sub form, and that's the way you can break in. So and uh, being nice to everybody goes a long way. Let's say let's say a uh, contractor is looking for a um, trumpet player, and he can either, buy, either hire you or this other new kid that came to town, and you both play about the same level. Who's he going to hire? He's going to hire the nicest guy. He's going to hire the guy that gets along with everybody. You know, they, I, I've, I've seen a lot of trumpet players burn bridges. You know, they, they come in and they get on the gig and they say, oh, I can play better than that lead player. You know, I should be playing lead. See, uh, you, and you can't diss people. You can't go into a gig and tell the contrary, look, call me next time instead of the other guy. Because word gets out, it's always a small community of people that do all the gigs in whatever town you're in. So you got to be nice to everybody and you don't diss anybody, especially the guy that sent you in for the gig. You could say to the contractor, look, you know, if Ruby Green is not available, call me. Here's my business card. And uh, a business card is a a great thing to have, too, because um, you can't walk into town and, and brag about yourself. If you have an agent, the agent can brag about you. But if you if, if you just like most musicians don't have an agent, you're just on your own. So it's, you can't walk in and say, "Hey, I'm Tom Malone. I'm the best 
blah, blah, blah. You can't do that. Doesn't doesn't work. But you can hand somebody a business card and that means you mean business. And it's got your phone number and your email address on it and it has your skills on it. I've I had I got some cards that have 14 instruments on them. Yeah. Yeah. But I also had one for arranging arranging and copying too, which I got some gigs out of too. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's that's uh, that's my advice for some of you younger people that want to break in. Yeah, that's that's all advice. And I mean that that opening portion, I think that's advice for everybody, young, old, doesn't matter what you do. Uh, yeah, be nice to people. And uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I was actually just writing uh, content for an upcoming episode of my. Uh, show that I do on mindfulness. And uh, that was one of the concepts that, that I was talking about is the importance of, of having empathy and compassion. Because, uh, you know, we, we've kind of gotten jaded as a society. And I mean, there's there's that natural portion of our brain that uh, that has, you know, the negativity bias and, and other parts of our brain that that uh, are designed to protect us in a way, you know, it's like, okay, well, this is this might be dangerous. It doesn't look like something I know, so it, it might be dangerous. But the purpose of that was, you know, in, in our primal states, that was that was our survival. But now we're, we don't need that. But we still tend to uh, look at things that we don't that don't look like us, that don't think like us, that don't talk like us. Uh, and view those people as wrong or the enemy as opposed to, you know, hey, this is just a different facet of life. This is def- another expression. And instead of thinking, uh, what can I do to protect myself from this person? We should be thinking, what can I do to learn more from this person, to learn about them and to learn about their experiences and to enrich my life through their experiences? Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Um, I, I have learned a lot in my life by travel. My music has taken me all over the world. Uh, I've done 12 comprehensive tours of Europe, like every country in Western Europe. Uh, uh, four tours of, uh, four tours of uh, Japan, including Miles and Gill, 1983. Yeah, uh-huh. that, that yeah. had to be one heck of a gig. Oh, my God. Yeah, Cicely Tyson was Miles' uh, girlfriend on the road. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, and then... Uh, there was an, another State Department tour with, with uh, uh, Gil Evans, where we went to uh, Manila, Hong Kong, Bangkok, and Singapore. Mm. Yeah, that was, and uh, that, you know, go, going to South America to the Free Jazz Festival with uh, Gil Evans, 1987, 88, uh, uh, just all kinds of experiences like that, traveling to, to Canada. Uh, uh, I've just been uh, so lucky because you learn, you know, from other cultures, you learn, uh, you know, how things could be better. You know, like in Norway, college is free, healthcare is free, pharmaceutical is free. You know, there's different ways of doing things. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I didn't go on your show to talk talk about politics, but uh, uh, you know, just I just wanted to say that you can we can learn a lot. There's more other ways of doing things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and whether you want to talk about it on a global scale, you know, on the geopolitical scale. Or just bringing it back into the world of music, uh, there are lots of ways to do things, and there's lots of people that you can learn from, and uh, it's it's always having a, what uh, we always uh, called in, in martial arts having the the beginner's mind, and you know just being able to to go well you know I know what I know but I don't know all I I could know so let's uh, let's experiment and let's play and and let's experience and. Even, uh, 
you know, sometimes we, we want to look at, I mean, and, and certainly, you know, someone like you who has so much knowledge and so much experience, you have so much that you can share, but you'd be surprised at what you can learn, I'm not saying you, but what any of us can learn from anyone. You know, there's there's got a, there's a a 14 year old out there somewhere who has an insight that I've never had simply because he's lived a life that I've never lived. And, you know, the, to be able to to hear someone explain something in their own unique terms, uh, sometimes it, it fills in a gap in your understanding. So when you think that you've got all the answers, then you'll never get all the answers. So uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, what you're. What you stand for in your approach to music and your communication with others, because, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, heard from so many people about the talks that you've done and, and things like that. And you're, you're just like today, you just open this to just talk and to share um, people who have that side of them generally also have the flip side, which is the I'm willing to listen and to learn. So, you know, I think that that's what really makes a great musician and just a great person in general. Well, there, nobody knows everything. There, and there's so much knowledge out there. Uh, the, the Internet has just opened up a huge, giant source of almost any information. You can find out almost anything you want to, like just type it in and hit bang, you know, bang, and, and there's the answer. And uh, even different points of view on the same subject. Uh, uh, I remember when I was in college, you know, if you wanted to get some information for research paper or something, you had to go to the library and go through this card file and you got go up and down these dusty uh, books. And now it's just, uh, uh, th- th- there was no excuse for ignorance for sure. Right. I mean, you, you know, we have to, uh, we have to uh, be knowledgeable and, you know, make decisions based on reality. Uh, this, this, this COVID uh, pandemic has uh, made emphasized knowledge about science for instance. So uh, once again, I didn't come on your show to talk about politics, but uh, uh, I, I got my uh, second Pfizer shot a week ago today. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's the, the app, the knowledge is one thing. The application of it is the other part, you know, it's like we can have all the knowledge in the world, but if we don't put it to use, uh, it's 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 useless it's it's just uh it's worthless trivia that's kind of floating around in our head so it's it's the application so whether it's the application of science uh whether it's the application of uh theory and you know any of those other things it's you if you know the right thing to do but you don't do it that's where we start to run into problems so even 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 musical knowledge like let's say you're 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 learning to improvise well you need to know uh I remember the first time I started improvising, I was 14 and I was on stage and uh, pl- playing saxophone. I've been playing saxophone for about a month. And uh, the, just the leader of the band leads over to me and says, play a solo. And I'm like, what am I supposed to play? He says, anything you want. So I jumped in there and I s- soon found out that some notes sounded better than others. Now I'm starting to think, you know, th- theoretically and mathematically, like what, what key are we in? What, what are the notes in the scale? What, now what chord are we on now? And, and uh, so, uh, I mean, after at this point in my life, uh, it's it's not it's not that mathematical anymore. Right. Um, it was when I first started out. I'm trying to find you know how, what to, I want to play something that makes some sense and goes along with the chords, goes along with the chord structure of the song. Uh, but uh, at this point, it's slightly different. 
the reason we practice, or at least the reason I practice, is because I want the horn to play itself. Now, what's he talking about? That means if, okay, uh, you're on the bandstand and somebody says, we're going to play all the things you are. Okay, well, so I know the song, and I'm not thinking about what key this is in or that. I just, I just listen to the rhythm section, and I listen to the, the, the other side of my brain. You know, half your brain is uh, intellectual, and the other half is creative. So I turn off the intellectual part, open up the creative side of my brain, and a melody comes out. And the horn will play itself. The horn will play that melody. And it doesn't have, it could be the trumpet, it could be the trombone, it could be the saxophone, it could be the flute, it could be the piccolo, it could be the tuba. But it, you you want to practice to the point where the horn plays itself. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's, that, that's it, you know. And I think some, so many times we, we try to make the instrument do things instead of allowing it to do what it, it does. You know, if, if we don't get, um, if we don't get out of our own way, then the music can never come out. And, uh, you know, again, I'll, I'll put a plug in for myself. I'm, I'm actually uh, getting ready to do a presentation for, uh, the international trumpeters guild and, Excellent. Awesome. and, and it's on mindfulness for musicians. And, uh, the title is, uh, it's all in your head. And that's kind of one of, so this is, this is a teaser for those of you who might be interested in checking out this, uh, this workshop. And, you know, you've got, definitely you have those two sides of your brain. You have the intellectual, the, the logical side, you have the creative side, and we need both to work together, but it's understanding when one needs to be dominant. And we get in our own way because we start overthinking things. We start uh, trying to go through these processes instead of just you know, that's what you do in the practice room. When the practice room, that's when the logic needs to kick in. That's when the analytical mind needs to be in full effect. But once you get on stage, that needs to go away. And you have to allow the creative because at that point, your brain is actually blocking the music, which is in your heart. You know, the music is your heart and soul. It's not anything that's up here. It's what you're feeling. And that needs to be able to come out of the horn because the horn's job is just to amplify what you have inside you it's the amplifier absolutely and so absolutely we, i know yeah. and uh, like when when if you're sight reading music maybe the intellectual part is dominant because your your uh, uh rhythm rhythms are 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 uh, mathematical right right you know, you're subdividing uh four four into this and to that and to that so uh and then and then uh in the next bar you start playing a solo so you switch sides of your brain Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, and once again, like uh, if you're if you if you're playing a song you don't know, then you're going to have to uh, analyze the chord symbols that are in front of you. So you know, you got both sides of the brain have to be operating. Uh, uh, have to have, I think, equal strength. Yeah, you know, like your ability to turn your creative side loose. Yeah, I think is also it's a skill that we develop as yeah. we as we play music more and more. Like yeah. if you, say you. Oh, so you're going to play a big band concert. So your sight read the chart. That's one level. But after after you play several rehearsals, you sort of own the part and you sort of know the part. And, uh, you know, you're not really sight reading at that point. Right. Yeah. You, you digested it. So it's uh, but uh, yeah, balancing the brain. Most uh, most people I see in the world, not necessarily music world, but uh, most of the people I see in the outer world are, are either dominated by one side or the other. But we as musicians have to have both sides. A farmer 
might not have an intellectual side, but he knows how to do this and to do that. You know, like, so his creative side is very amplified. And then uh, like a, you know, a pharmacist uh, might have his intellectual side very uh, uh, tweaked. Uh, a, a lawyer might have his intellectual side very tweaked because he has to remember uh, cases, case histories. He has to memorize uh, stuff out of books. So, right. uh, but we as musicians need both sides of the brain and we need to, uh, in some amount of balance. Yeah. And, and that's really so interesting in terms of uh, the way we approach practice and that that's one of the, um, the things that, that I hear constantly from people uh, in terms of a criticism of the way that we uh, tend to uh, teach music uh, and especially uh, uh, in, in the jazz world is yes, it, I think it's very important and I, I am by no means a world-class jazz player, but yes, it's important to understand uh, you know, the theory and the history and, you know, your, your patterns and stuff like that. But ultimately, if you're going to be an improviser, it's about creativity. Now, granted, you have to learn the language. You have to have the syntax to, to, to have your, your language be at a higher level, but you need to, you need to learn to speak. You need to learn to play. You need to learn to, you know, to let it out. And, uh, one of my favorite, uh, improvisers, trumpet players, uh, Tim Hagen's, Tim had oh, yeah. a int- really interesting, like a mind-blowing uh, thing that he said about, um, he said, you should basically start every day's practice with like 10 to 20 minutes of free play, just completely free. No, you know, no tone center, no time, no preconceived idea of what you're doing. He's just like, just let what you feel come out don't no chords no chord structure no chord structure no whatever you free yeah and just just do it and he said and get that creativity going and get it out because most people can't access their creativity because they don't practice accessing their creativity you know so that that's why you know he he said something that that like when you go wow that's that's really interesting he said if i'm listening to you playing a solo if i walk into a bar and you're playing a solo and I can whistle or, or sing or hum what you're going to play next, then you're not really improvising. So if I can predict what you're going to do next, that's really not improvisation. You're just, you're, you're doing these predictable patterns that, so, you know, to be a, a real improviser, you need to, you need to be able to catch people off guard. It needs to be an original statement. It re- needs to be something from your heart. So, um, you know, I think that sometimes we, we lose track of that and lose track of the fact that it is, well, it's an innate skill. We have to practice not so much getting out, but we got to practice getting out of the way so that it can come out. Right. I think, I, I think of that as, as, as letting the creative side of your brain play the horn. Yeah. That's what I think Jim Hagens is talking about. I mean, it's another way of interpreting what he says. Yeah. Uh, that, now, and a, a lot of, uh, young players, you know, I, I go to the JEN convention. I was at IAJE convention. I've been going to those jazz conventions for 30 years. And, uh, uh, you know, some student will ask, frequently ask me, like, how can I learn to improvise? Well, uh, what I usually tell them to find, uh, let's, let's say it's a trumpet player. Okay. So find somebody, find a solo by a jazz trumpet player that you really love. Okay. Learn that solo, either learn it by ear or write it down. But learn that solo and 
that's a good starting place. Now that's not, uh, and eventually you might um, develop your own style, but I think that's a good starting place. It's some, something that you really like because if you if you write it down, you will be able to analyze it. Well, how does this work with with the chord? Okay, we're on a dominant chord now. He's he's playing a, a, a plus nine and a flat nine. You know, so uh, so so that gives gives you tools to uh, put stuff together, put improvisation together, uh, and uh, you know, eventually uh, you might come up with your own style. I think that's the I think that's the path that a lot of uh, our friends have gone. You know that that improvise yeah yeah well it, it's a language and like with any language um you know you you learn through imitation first you know you, you're copying sounds you're copying phrases and then eventually can can develop a larger vocabulary and then you can speak a little more freely but and yeah and that's where whenever i have someone says i can't improvise i'm like well you 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 need to rethink that because you do have the ability to improvise. We're improvising every day, all day. Uh, you know, we're just not doing, you may not be doing it on the horn, but you're improvising. So don't say that improvisation is something, a skill that you don't have period within your body. You just haven't learned how to apply it in this particular construct. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, no, I've, I've heard that from a lot of people, but I've, I've also seen like somebody has an opportunity to improvise and they don't really know how to do it. So now they're on stage and somebody says, play a solo. Yeah. So, okay. So they fail because they don't really know what to do. And then from then on, instead of working on improvisation, they just say, I can't improvise. Right. You know, it's just like, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not something that happens like the first time you try to do it. I mean, yeah. you have to have some understanding of what it is. Uh, you know, I, my theory is that anybody can learn to improvise. But uh, uh, it, it, with some preparation, I found that the first time people improvise, if they're successful, they will continue to improvise. Now, I do a clinic with fourth graders. I did a clinic with fourth graders in, uh, was it Buffalo or Syracuse? I think it was Buffalo. Anyway, um, how, how, many of you, how many of you can improvise? You know, and nobody raised their hands. So how many would you like to be able to improvise? And they're like, you know. So I said, well, how many of you can play your B-flat scale? That's the C scale for you trumpet players. Mm -hmm. That's the G scale for you alto sax players. Uh, so how many of you can play your B-flat scale? Everybody raises their hand. I said, well, you can improvise right now. And so I get a rhythm section to play, you know, B-flat major, G minor 7, C minor 7, F7, you know, a 1, 6, 4, 5. Right. 1, 6, 2, 5 progression. You know, it's kind of an old doo-wop chord progression but and then i show them i get the rhythm section and i start showing them how all the notes in the scale fit in there you can improvise right now and one at a time i got 40 fourth graders to come up on the stage and successfully improvise and those kids will continue to improvise because now they have the confidence that they can do it right now is that um is that the only song they're going to play for the rest of their life as improvisers no i bet mean, it's a, it's a 
I, I start them off with something simple that they can understand. And then, then maybe, uh, uh, you know, all the things you are, are giant steps or something, you know, that's, uh, that's further down the road, but at least you have a basic idea of that the scale fits this chord progression. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the thing, like you're saying, you know, that they have a positive experience and, um, like, you know, going back to that, what I, what I was saying about, you know, people, you know, you always have the ability to improvise. It, it's restructuring your con your concept of what you're trying to say. It's being clear on your definition because when people say they can't improvise, they maybe mean they can't improvise to the level of someone like you or the, or the level of someone like, you know, Lou Marini or the, you know, anybody like that, you know, it's like, well, I can't do it at that level. So therefore I can't do it as opposed to, you know, I can do it. It may not sound that great to start out with, but I can do it. And now I know that I have just like you have the you have the ability to walk or to to uh, do any physical activity when the when you first start doing it, it's going to stink. It's not going to be very good. But with practice, it improves. But if you know, if every skill that we learned in our life, we felt like we had to do it at a high level uh, immediately, then we'd never do anything. We'd never walk. We'd never drive a car. We'd never. You know, right. we never do well, anything. Well, that, that, just like I was saying before, uh, uh, we I, I want the horn to play itself. That's why I practice. Now, if you you uh, uh, you learn to walk at an early age, and it was you probably stumbled around a little bit. But um, now, when you're walking down the street, your your body walks by itself, and you don't think about it. it, it right. It, it, body walks by itself, and you're thinking about everything except. And it, it like after when you first start driving a car, it's the same thing. It's uh, it's tough, but after a while, it the, the car drives itself. Your body automatically drives the car, and you're thinking about, uh, you know, your girlfriend. You're thinking about the gig. You're thinking about everything except driving the car. And and uh, uh, and okay, so yes, everybody can improvise. No, like we're we're carrying on a conversation right now, and we're actually improvising using words. Right. You you say something, and it engenders an idea in my mind. I say something, and it engenders an idea in your mind. I mean, so. Uh, improv- improvisation is just using uh, different elements. You're using musical elements instead of verbal elements. Right. And that being said, um, music is invisible. You can watch somebody play an instrument, but the music itself is invisible. And uh, magician and musician are almost the same word. I like that. I like that. And also, color, um, music, harmony, and color harmony are all the same when you break it down into physical elements, mm-hmm. uh, frequency relationships. Like, right. you know, an, an octave higher is double the frequency. C32, you know, low C32, uh, 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 an octave higher is <clears throat> C64. An octave higher is middle C128 cycles per second. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you can hear eight or ten octaves depending on your ear. You can only see one octave. But... Um, <clears throat> The frequency relationships of, of the color harmony and the music harmony are exactly the same. For instance, um, visualize red, yellow, and blue. Okay. Now these 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 colors harmonize, and, and they have a sort of a happy feeling about them too. That's equivalent oh. to C, E, and G. That's like a major triad. Okay, now if, envision these colors: orange, green, purple. Now these colors harmonize, but they, it's a whole different emotional feeling. And that's D, F, and A, that's a D minor chord. So right there, 
you know, music harmony and uh, uh, color harmony, you know, art and music are all the same now. Wow. I never knew that. That's great. That's a great tip. I'll have to make sure I uh, put that as a highlight for this this episode. So. <laughs> wow, that's great. Yeah, I want to ask you about a couple of things. Um, you know, in terms of like the psychology of playing, so many people have stage fright. And, you know, that's actually one of the, the things that, that got me like serious in the martial arts was that uh, I was in with a lot of stage fright as a musician. You know, it's like I could play in a section. Don't put me out front. Um, but, you know, I, I did learn a way to, to deal with that. But I know there are a lot of people that 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 still to this day have problems with dealing with, OK, you know, oh, my God, you know, I've got, you know, 100 people in this audience or I've got, a, you know, I'm playing in a stadium full of a thousand people. And, and in your case, you've played uh, with the knowledge that there are millions of people that are, you know, watching your performance at, at any given time. Um, has that ever crossed your mind, you know, the, the magnitude of your audience and, and ha- has it affected you? And if so, how do you manage that uh, and allow it to or not allow it to get in the way of your music? Well, one of the things uh, uh, about stage fright is uh, it's something that, it, 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 you know, the first time I was on stage, I remember, I think I was in a school band or something. And, um, uh, you know, I had a little bit of anxiety, you know, because you know, parents and relatives and I think all the other parents and, you know, there's all these you know, 800 people in the audience uh, watching the concert. So, uh, but uh, I, the, the, the great thing about music education is that you, the more you perform in front of people, the less anxiety you experience. That's what I like about school bands because you're, you know, you're marching in front of a big audience at the football game. You're, you're playing a concert. Uh, you're playing, you know, I was playing in clubs from age 14 and um, uh, just, just the more you do it, the less anxiety you have. Um, I remember uh, we played the uh, <laughs> closing <laughs> ceremonies in Atlanta at the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> it was live TV for 100 million people all over the world. And there were 87,000 people in the arena. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, so that, I think that's the biggest audience that I ever played for. But I remember the first, um, the very first Saturday Night Live. Okay. Two minutes to air, you know, the, the stage manager, two minutes to air. So I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is exciting. I'm going to be playing on live TV. There's going to be at least 15 million people watching tonight. And uh, one, uh, one minute to air. Then I'm thinking to myself, wow, what if I miss a note? 15 million people are going to hear me miss the note. You know, 30 seconds. So anyway, so they counted down the show. and We played the show, you know, and, and, and uh, I didn't really miss any notes. And I had a good time. And so... Um, Every show after that was a little less anxiety. And now, uh, like, I don't even, I only played on 4,500 live TV shows. So in my career, so uh, I don't even think about it now. It's just, uh, it's just, it's just another gig. You know, I'm thinking about, uh, uh, I'm thinking about what I'm supposed to play. And I'm thinking about, oh, wow, if I have a solo, just turn it loose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's why I really wanted to ask that question of you, because of the sheer volume of work that you've done, uh, you know, with with SNL and then obviously, uh, you know, with with Letterman, that 
those you know those are super high profile gigs in turn and and in terms of music uh i mean obviously uh from a younger generation uh i'm i'm a little younger than you uh you know but i still grew up watching the tonight show oh know, yeah and you know oh, you know doc's band oh my god you know it's one that one of the one of the greatest greatest bands on on television um yeah. in history yeah. you know uh well i I played in uh, 1971. Lou Marini and I played with Doc Severinsen's weekend band. Doc Severinsen was the leader of the Tonight Show in New York with Johnny Carson. And uh, every Saturday and Sunday, we f- went to the airport and flew someplace and we played every Saturday and Sunday. It was a 10 piece band and he had eight or 10 girls and boys singer dancers and he did pop music of the time. Uh, and Doc would come out six or seven times during the concert, which was about two hours long. And he would. Um, play a bravado trumpet solo and, and he changed outfits every time. Uh, but Doc Severinsen, oh my God, he, he never played unless he had warmed up for two hours. Oh, like uh, we were in Las Vegas at the Sands, uh, first shows at two o'clock, right? Or, or whenever it was. And um, he, he, he would, um, he'd be there at noon. He'd be there at noon warming up. He wouldn't go, he always, you know, he had this, oh, uh, and what a great player. Oh my God. Uh, and the, his band, his weekend band, it was a great gig. 1971, it was 250 a night. That was a lot of money back then. Yeah. And uh, I'd say Lou Marini was in the band. Snooky Young. Uh, yes, Snooky. Lee Trumpet. Now, he was Lee Trumpet with Fletcher Henderson in 1939. So, and he was the nicest guy, number one. And he never missed a note. Every weekend for a year, he never missed a note. Yeah. And man, and he could and, uh, swing. Luke, Luke the Backen was in the band. Uh, Ed Shaughnessy, mm-hmm. uh, John B. Williams, uh, uh, Ross Tompkins. Yeah, it was a good, a good band yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. So man, that that's just yeah, that that's that's history. That's music history right there. And one night, one night, I uh, see during the year 1971 when I was in the weekend band, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson moved to Los Angeles. Okay, so but the the, uh, the weekend band kept going. We you know you just go to the airport, and uh, so uh, and then one night we found ourselves you know the weekend band. We found ourselves the guest artists, the guest music on the Tonight Show in Los Angeles with Johnny Carson. Now we played uh, only the beginnings by Chicago. So now I'm on national TV playing a trombone solo. Uh-oh. Yeah, that was I think that was my first 1971. Yeah, but mm-hmm. Doc was. He was such an imp- uh, an inspiration, yeah. you know, the way he took care of himself and the way he, the way you could see him breathe. Yeah. Uh, uh, Even to this he's day. Still, I just, I saw him at the jazz convention. Uh, he played, he, he, he was 89 years old at the time. And, uh, and I just went backstage and I just said, doc, Tom Malone, I just want to say hello. I'll, I'll leave you alone. Get back here. He said, you know, and we hung out for about a half hour before he had to go on stage. And talk, and he had, he had all those marbles. He remembered everything. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, just uh, uh, when, he, he was a great role model for me in many ways. You yeah. know, the way he got along with people, and uh, uh, you know, he was just a straight shooter. Yeah, yeah, and and still has a sound, man. He 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 still blows like nobody else can. L- later in my career, I got to. Uh, I got. To, I did an arrangement for Lonette McKee for the Tonight Show in in Los Angeles, and I flew out there as an arranger uh, to you know and, and headed out to charts to the guys in the band, and also twice with uh, Paul Schaefer when he was a guest on the show. I, I wrote charts for the 
Tonight Show band, and uh, uh, that was a great thrill for me. Yeah. Well, and the and that actually one brings me kind of to the second part of the question that I wanted to ask you is that, you know, having been uh, on SNL, being uh, working with with the Letterman Dan and, and Paul. Uh, the, you know, the, and you know, the, the Saturday Night Live gig that, that uh, also kind of helped spawn the Blues Brothers thing. Uh, you've been part of some rather iconic uh, productions uh, in terms of, of music in, uh, in the past few decades. Uh, you know, you, you can't help but think when you're thinking about live TV in the, in the past few decades, you can't help but think about the Saturday Night Live band uh, the, and the Letterman band. Those, those are just two fantastic bands that people got to see uh regularly Saturday Night Live obviously only once a week but you know the Letterman band multiple times a week um and then the Blues Brothers I mean that that movie you know there there's a whole there's a new generation like every every generation you know gets introduced to that movie because it is still not only a comedy classic but it is a musical classic uh, you know, this, just the, the stuff that you guys did as the Blues Brothers and then obviously the stuff with, you know, Aretha and, you know, I mean, all the people that are in it, it's just so phenomenal. Um, do you ever stop and think like, oh, my God, you know, I've been part of, of these kind of uh, genre defining moments? Uh, is, is Does it ever kind, kind of like... Uh, dawn on you the the impact that that you've been able to to have on on the culture of uh of the world basically uh or is this like eh, it's another gig well um I, I was always uh you know i was always a big um big fan of james brown big fan of aretha franklin big uh, uh you know big fan of ray charles you got to work with ray charles on saturday night live you got to write some arrangements for him we're, we're, we're rehearsing the band and ray charles is sitting there and we're rehearsing it and he cuts off the band. He says, tenor sax bar 37, that should be a B flat instead of a B natural. You know, now how did, I mean, how do you, how can you explain that? Uh, James Brown, oh my God. Um, I not only played uh, uh, with him on TV, with, on the Letterman show on Saturday Night Live, but I also played, uh, I played on Funky President. I played on Give Me My Thing. Uh, and I played live with him in New York. We played a, a week at the Copacabana, two, two shows a night, six nights. The next week we played at a club called the Cheetah, which was a big uh, Latin R&B club, West 52nd Street. Five nights, two shows a night. A second show started at 2.30 in the morning. Oh, man. Started at 2.30. Started at yeah. 2.30. Yeah. But James, oh, my God. And I, I got, uh, you know, watching him rehearse the band, you know, he, he would show the drummer exactly what to play. No, do this on the snare. Do this on the hi hat. And uh, uh, I was a big fan of his. I go all the way back to his. He did two albums, uh, instrumental albums, where he played organ. Mm -hmm. We're going way back. This is actually probably before Live at the Apollo. Right. Uh, but uh, so I, you know, I know all his music and uh, getting to play and even arrange for him. I actually got uh, Fred Wesley called me up one time from from Los Angeles. He says, 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 Tom, I miss my plane. Can you? Do a recording session. Can you sub for me at a recording session up in White Plains at Blah 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 Studio? You know, and so I actually played on a JB's album. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, James Brown was always such a, a an energy, you know. And it was a guy that sort of came from nothing, you know. And he made something happen, and he developed his own style. And everybody 
uh, follows that style. Even you know, you listen to rap music today, you'll hear, you know, James Brown influence in there. Yeah. Uh, I thought, I, I just uh, think he's a, a musical genius of sorts. And Rita Franklin too. She used to request me for her solo records uh, in New York when she would come through and uh, and record. So uh, you know, good relationship with her too. Uh, yeah, man, that's. I mean, that that's such great stuff. And yeah, you know, it's I, very rewarding for me to, uh, creatively to get to play with my heroes. Yeah, you know, I feel like yeah, I feel like I'm actually getting somewhere. Well, you know, it, it's it's funny, you know, the the way that um, fame works, and there are different levels of fame, and uh, you know, there there are people who are famous, uh, you know, like in let's, let's say the trumpet world, uh, and that's actually part of what what kind of spawned this part this podcast, uh, or it, that has led me to be able to do this podcast, is because a lot of people are afraid to go up to the famous players, you know, the, the, the Waynes, the, the Jerry Hayes, the Frank Greens, you know, the U's, uh, of the world and, and say, Hey, look, you know, man, I just really want to talk to you. They're afraid because it's like, Oh, this guy's really famous. But you know, the, the fame of, you know, uh, like, you know, Jerry, you know, very, very, one of the most influential in my, in my mind, one of the most influential, uh, musicians of the, past 30 40 years i guess now since oh jerry since, yeah since the jerry, 70s, oh yeah, yeah you know and, i mean a ranger a ranger too yeah, i mean yeah and the the stuff that he that he has done uh you know has really defined a, a, a total genre um but you know if he were to walk down the street uh here in in uh, lancaster pennsylvania where i am and, and go to the starbucks uh no one would know who he was you know sure. you that's know? true uh, now, LeBron James, that's a different story. You know, <laughs> Tom Cruise, that's a different story. So there are all these different levels of fame. True. And uh, true. It, it's, but but ultimately what we find out is that, uh, you know, everybody, you're still a person, you know, you're still a human. And that when you treat people like humans, as opposed to idols or people, you know, people to be revered, uh as opposed to respected, you know, you treat someone with respect. That's one thing. When you revere someone, when you put them on a pedestal, then I think that can become very uncomfortable at times. Um, but I think that that ability to be in a position where you hold some level of gravitas uh, that you you use, as uh, we were talking about uh, earlier, uh, about using your powers for good. Uh, that that you use your fame, you use your uh, you, you use your level of influence uh, in an industry or in a society. You use it for for growth. You use it for the betterment of of all. Um, so I know that w- with the stuff that you've been doing, that you've been fortunate to to do, and the people you've been fortunate to work with, um, you've been you've witnessed the dark side of fame you've witnessed the you know you've seen the allure you've seen the positive but you've also seen the traps that people fall into so i mean were the, were there any moments where you you kind of had the question of you know is, is this really the path that i want to be on or is, or you know any, any points where you're like you had those moments of clarity where it's like, you know, I have to be very careful not to walk down that path because I don't want to end up like this person or that person who's allowed their fame to, to destroy their life. 
Oh yeah. Well, uh, the, the, the thing that comes to my mind, uh, few of the people I've known in my life, you know, uh, in, inspired musicians, uh, the, the path you don't want to go down is the drug path. That's, um, that's a dead end. And I mean, dead, I mean, dead like, you know, like your heart stops beating. Right. Uh, I, 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 I have to make a list of the, my friends that are no longer with us because of the, you know, the drugs. So, um, I, that's, that's a, that's a path you don't want to go down. Um, uh, that's yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's so. I think it's so easy because um, regardless of where you are on that spectrum, whether you're whether you're uh, famous in just a, a niche kind of audience. I mean, like when when I was uh, very heavily uh, involved in the martial arts world and competition world and things like that, uh, especially as I became like a, a, a judge and a coach and things like that, you know, I go to these conventions doing presentations and, you know, people were wanting, okay, can I, can I take you out to lunch? Can I do this? Can I do that? Um, and sometimes it was the person who just really wanted to show appreciation for your contribution to something that they loved. Other times it was people that were wanting to either cozy up to you, uh, to get a better score uh, the next time they competed or they, they're wanting to get something from you. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so, you know, I've experienced on, on that level and then there's all the way up to, you know, the, the mega stars, um, you know, the athletes, the, the actors, the politicians or, you know, people like that, that, that people, you know, you, you have to, you, you end up having to put up a shield sometimes because there are too many people that want to, to take and not have a reciprocal relationship with you. And uh, that's why I try to be very respectful for ev from everyone and to, to learn from, from everyone and to share and to give, try to always give more than I, I take uh, because uh, you know, I, I understand what that's like, but you know, in, in your world, in the world that you're, you're traveling in the, the, on a, on a daily basis, um, you know, how do you manage to walk the fine line between uh, being so open that you, you give away everything that you have and that you're, you're left drained and, you know, giving yourself uh, boundaries to work with uh, that don't uh, make you aloof, but also don't put you in a position where you've just overextended yourself? Well, it, it, um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm always working at doing something in my studio. I'm either doing remote production for somebody you know, I just uh, I just arranged and recorded the whole horn section for a, for a Temptations song, uh, and, uh, and and another new artist uh, like last week. And uh, uh, I have to protect myself, you know, because my time is valuable and uh, don't have time to waste. So uh, have to uh, you know you don't plaster your phone number and your email address all over the you know outside of your house or or anywhere. You know, you have to kind of have to protect your privacy a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that that's probably one of the hardest things that we have to deal with uh, now in, in this current, in the digital age, uh, you know, back in the old days when, when uh, you didn't have things like cell phones, <laughs> you were lucky if you yeah. had an answering service, uh, you know, it, it's a little easier to, to give your information out. But right now it's, it's so easy for people to find out things about you that, that maybe you didn't even want them to know uh, because everything is out there. So, um, but it's, it's wonderful. It's that it's that wonderful little dichotomy that exists where the information is so readily available to us, but sometimes there's too much information or too much of the wrong thing out there. So being very careful about what we what we share with others is is uh, you know 
that's absolutely that's important. I agree. I agree. We have yeah. to, yeah, we have to protect ourselves to a certain degree. And uh, when you, when I, when I go out to uh, do a guest artist at a, at a, at a college, you know, lecture, uh, a concert, stuff like that, you know, you get to, you get to talk to people and get to meet people, but um, you know, you don't necessarily give them your cell phone number and you don't necessarily give them your email address and you don't, you know, you, you, uh, you know, you have to take one step backwards sometimes because yeah, uh, yeah. I, I get too much email as it is and, and not that it's bad email, but <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's a, uh, uh, I, I spend, you know, I have to spend time uh, erasing emails before the thing shuts down. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Well, it's crazy. You're you're in demand. You're definitely Life in demand. The, yeah, yeah. Life. It, so uh, I, I've got uh, two two uh, final segments we got to get to, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna value you and your time and, and honor and respect that to let let you get out of here. But uh, the one thing that I did want to ask before we got into these is. I know it's kind of like asking a, a parent which one is their favorite child, but if if you had to uh, give me your your favorite gigs that you've done, just, just, I get I've, I've been asked this question before, and uh, uh, there's been so many outstanding uh, moments. Uh, I mentioned a couple of them. Playing with James Brown at the Cheetah was one of them. Uh, playing the closing ceremonies in Atlanta was one of them. Uh, wow. Uh, uh, Playing at Sting's Rainforest. Oh my God! Yeah, um, there's so many, so many people there. Uh, you know, big name yeah. people that I could drop. Well, that, let, that let, is, let me let, let me rephrase this question because you've been if you've been asked me before. I don't want to ask the question. I want to ask a different question, but it's going to be the same kind of thing. I, I want to know what your favorite gig was that you went into going. I really don't want to do this one. Like one of those moments where it's like, eh, I'm going to do this anyway. And it turns out being something that you just thoroughly enjoyed more than anything that you could imagine. I never went into a gig with that attitude. Like I, I don't really not, this is going to suck. You know, I never really, really went into a gig like that okay. uh, with that attitude. I mine, mine was like, uh, uh, I'm going to play as good as I can. And I'm going to have as much fun as I can. And I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm going to groove with the band. And, uh, uh, cause I like just about, you know, I like, just about every style of music you know i played uh played with garth brooks played with uh you know all all the big country guys uh and uh uh all the big latin guys you know, all the big jazz i played on miles davis's la last recording about three weeks before he died uh, uh miles davis and quincy jones and montreux right uh that was a that was a big uh a big thing for me and um uh, oh gee so many so many but no i never I never did a gig that I didn't want to do. Well, that is a great answer in and of itself. So there, I was, I was thankful to have the gig. <laughs> well, there is that too. All right. Well, um, we're going to wrap up. I have two segments that we we do every episode, and um, the first one is uh, for all the gearheads out there because you you know how how we brass players are. Uh, we're we're definitely gearheads. So. Um, this segment, this segment is called geared up and I just want to, uh, just get a brief rundown. You have to go into details and into all of the specifics of your gear, but just what kind of stuff are you using? And more specifically, um, what is it that you look for when you're looking at, at your gear? What, what are you trying to, to get out of your instrument? Oh, uh, I have to have, I have to have the best trumpet there is in order to sound good. This is a early New York Bach. Oh uh, man! It's, it's serial, serial number four four one eight. 
it's a uh, it says seven dash fifty nine on the bell. That means it's a seven bell. No, it's a it's a uh, seven lead pipe and a four fifty nine bore. That means medium large. Uh, it's made in nineteen thirty six, and That's uh, beauty. this is a Bach three C mouthpiece. And uh, I'm trying to remember what you call this. John Fattis walked into a session with one of these one day. Uh, compression ring, it's called. And uh, the theory is that the uh, it's very thin right here at this part of the mouthpiece, so it, th it thickens it up and it centers the sound. Makes it a little more difficult to play, strangely enough, but uh, I like the sound. I have the, 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 the early New York Bach trumpets say New York USA on the bell. Mm -hmm. the, that was the fact factory on 2nd Avenue. Uh, when the factory moved to the Bronx, it says New York 67 on the bell. Now, this is the early New York. I had nine early New York trumpets, and uh, I gave one to Frank Green, my friend Frank Green. Uh, but this this is my favorite. I have some that are more that are older and have more elaborate uh, engraving on them, but this is the one that I really like. Oh, that's a uh, beauty. And the and the three C mouthpiece works for me. It gets a good sound, and uh, I have an emergency high note mouthpiece, but I don't like to pull it out. Uh, uh, it's easier to hit the high note, but the you know the sound quality uh, loses a little bit of something. So. Uh, you know, I try to just stay with this mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. uh, I, one time on the Letterman show, when it was just two horns in the section, Arturo Sandoval sat in with us. And uh, so I'm, I'm hitting the high F at the end of the song, and he's, uh, he's an octave higher. <laughs> and he's playing a 3C mouthpiece. Playing on that 3C. I asked him, I asked him, I said, uh, why, why do you play the 3C? He says, because if I lose it, I can walk into any music store and buy another one. That's legit. <laughs> that that's a great that's a great reason yeah yeah oh that, man that's absolutely it um that yeah that's the those old new york box man those those are beautiful beautiful instruments and i have a uh also have a, a pre-war pre-war silver-plated french besson flugelhorn which mm. actually plays in tune as opposed to most most other yeah i know yeah well, most other flugelhorns and uh, I, I have a selmer four valve piccolo trumpet okay Great. So with uh, your gear that you're using, um, you know, particularly because your your demands that you have uh, definitely lean uh, for the, the sound that you need to get. Um, do you find that, uh, you know, having having that kind of a standard setup? I know Arturo says you, know, you can walk into any, any music store and get a 3C. But do you find that that, that setup uh, allows you the, the versatility that that you need for? Uh, for things without having to to do too many equipment equipment changes on a gig, you're not you're not uh, the Luso off you know, you know fifty mouthpieces on on the the stand well, kind, kind of guy. Luso off had uh, he used to take when we were blood sweat and tears he had he had uh, three trumpets he had two two box and uh, um, one of them was like this New York box and um, and then he had a shilky that had two bells so he had three horns and one of the horns had had a, a straight bell and then it had a dizzy bell on it. So he'd bring three trumpets and he had five mouthpieces. He had a, um, a three C, a seven C. I uh, had two, two custom mouthpieces that were made by a guy at Shulky. I'm trying to remember the guy's name, a uh, uh, famous mouthpiece maker. It was called Soloff one and Soloff two. Oh, and Soloff one was, was a shallower mouthpiece and Soloff two was even shallower than that. I'm trying to remember what the fifth mouthpiece was. I'm thinking it must it had to be a Bach. It was probably a larger Bach, like a one and a half C. Uh -huh. And uh, 
Uh, so uh, Lou let me make copies. I went to Giordanelli's and made copies of the Soloff one and the Soloff two. One day Lou lost his mouthpiece pouch. So I gave him those two mouthpiece copies back. Uh, yeah. That's great. That's a great story. I, I miss Lou too. He's a good, he was a good friend. Yeah. Yeah. And, and such a, such a phenomenal player. He, he, he studied with all the best guys too. He studied with everybody, you know, symphonic players. Uh, one time after I, after I joined the band, it was 1973, uh, you know, occasionally we would go to this restaurant on Thompson street in Greenwich village. It had great Italian food. And so he calls me and says, can you, can you come to dinner at seven o'clock uh, tomorrow night? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So I'm envisioning that you know, the two of us will be sitting there and we'll be talking about music and talking about trumpets and stuff like that. The entire brass section from the Chicago Symphony was there. Yeah. Yeah. 1973. I, I was, I was, I was just blown away. I couldn't believe it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, in terms of like, you know, switching back and forth between, uh, you know, trombone and, and trumpet, do you find uh, that, I mean, obviously it's not a problem for you since you do it so regularly. Um, but if, if someone is interested in, say, starting to do doubling, if you're a trumpet player and, and you know, you're thinking about switching over and doing a little trombone work, um, what do you suggest in terms of equipment that would provide uh, and the easiest transition from one instrument to the, the next? Well, uh, I started on the tuba and then went to the trombone and then went to the trumpet and then went to the piccolo trumpet and then went to the bass trombone. So uh, one, one piece of advice would be if you're going to be like pieces and stick with them. You know, like if, you, if you're going to, especially diameter, like, uh, you know, I told you I have a, 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 a shallower trumpet mouthpiece, but the rim is the same. So because you're you build up muscle around the placement of the mouthpiece. So uh, you need to uh, Maynard Ferguson had a concentric circle theory about mouthpieces because he played all the brass instruments. And uh, so you want to you want to have a centered embouchure, a centered like where your tuba goes, and then you have a smaller one for the bass trombone and a smaller one for the trombone, and then a, but they're all centered and they're all one is within the other. It looks like a target. It looks like a, a you know a a, a, a target. A, a, you're going to shoot bow and arrow at a target or shoot a gun at a target. That's what that's what the rings look like. And you because the more you play the instrument, that you develop the ring. You know the muscles conform around around the placement of the mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful and. Uh, like if you're gonna if you play too loud and too high on the trumpet, you know you could mess yourself up, and then you're messed up on everything. So the, the, you know, I think the trumpet and the piccolo trumpet are the ones that you really have to be careful. I don't think you're gonna hurt yourself playing the trombone or the or the bass trombone or the tuba. Uh, if I have if I have a day to practice, I'll I'll start on the tuba and then go to the bass trombone and then go to the trombone and then go to the trumpet and then go to the piccolo trumpet. And if I have a if I have a a limited amount of time to practice. I will um, just, I'll do lips on the trumpet. These muscles right here in the corner of your mouth are the ones that give you uh, range and endurance that allows you to play for the extra hour. It allows you to, to hit the high note. The way we develop these is by isolating them and playing lip slurs. You can play complicated lip slurs or you can just, uh, I'll just, uh, 
you know, play C to high C just over and over and over and over and over and over until I can't do it anymore. And then I'll put the horn down, check my email, come back a minute later and do some more of the same kind of lip slurs mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, like, or, you know, F to high F too. That's a, that's a good lip slur too, but that basically isolates these muscles. And, um, since these muscles play all the instruments, you know, uh, uh Playing lip slurs for 10 minutes on the trumpet is the same as playing lip slurs on the trombone for 20 minutes. It's the same as playing lip slurs on the tuba for 40 minutes because of the compression, the required compression. And the piccolo trumpet is even more compression. So, you know, playing lip slurs on the trumpet wow. for 10 minutes, you know, mm-hmm. that's, you know, uh, but you know, you got you got to make yourself tired. Uh, it's the same principle as a, as a, as a weightlifter. Mm-hmm. Weightlifter doesn't just go in and pick up 250 pounds. No, weightlifter takes 15, 20 pound hand weights and does repetitions and repetitions and repetitions and repetitions and rep and then puts them down and rest for a minute. Let the blood circulate into the muscles and then picks them up and does it again and does it again. And so that's, those are the lip slurs for a weightlifter, but it's, it's all about muscle, muscle development, making your muscles stronger. You know, this from your martial arts, right? Yeah. You know, you do, uh, you do push ups or you do, you know, whatever they yeah all, all kinds of crazy stuff so yeah but, yeah, exactly. but yeah yeah that that's that that's really great i i really had i've never heard anyone explain it quite that way in terms of doing you know the the kind of correlation through the you know from from the lowest of the lows to yeah. the highs of the highs that, oh, that, yeah. that that makes absolute sense because you're <clears throat> you're concentrating uh the the vibrating surface area you're, which is going to that's going to require a little bit more uh you know compression to hold hold things yes. in and, and stuff so yes. yeah that that makes absolute sense so wow. I, I worked with i worked with a, a karate teacher who uh instead of just doing standard push-ups you would go halfway up and just hold there and you're yeah. doing them on your on your yeah on your knuckles on your knuckles as yeah. opposed to your flat hands and you anyway you go halfway up and just stay there yeah. you know <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah that that's very true that's very true well, cool. That was I, that was definitely worth the price of admission. Okay, well, we got one last segment to get through, and this is brought to us uh, by our friends at Robinson's Remedies, which I know you know Kenny uh, and Richard very well. That? That's the that? Robinson's Remedies. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Our good friends at Robinson's yes. Remedies. This is the yeah. Robinson's Remedies He's, rapid fire round. You ever, you ever heard him play the piccolo trumpet? I have heard Kenny play the piccolo trumpet many a time. Usually oh, yeah. directly at my face. We uh, we've been at many a show together. Uh, like uh, he plays the thing. same the same horn I play. He plays the Selmer four valve. Yeah, I just saw him at the jazz convention. What year and a half ago? Or something. Yeah, Kenny's yeah. a good guy. Really good guy. So Robinson's really. I, I, I endorse that product, by the way. I I heard that through the grapevine. Yes, I did. So uh, and I I also am an endorsing artist for them, and uh, they sponsor the segment on the show. So it's all family. But, uh, Absolutely. This Absolutely. Is, Good this, stuff. This Good is our, stuff. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's uh you know you talk about uh, lip slurs or you know uh, the weight training for the trumpet player or uh, you know and and that's that's the uh, that's the creatine that's the stuff that helps uh, help you the recovery. So absolutely, it right. works. So we're gonna we're gonna do this rapid fire round. It's a series of questions. Uh, they're gonna be kind of all over the place. I just need your quickest answer, your fastest response to the. Okay answer these questions and we're going to get started right now with the first one tom bones malone who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a the the musician biggest influence is not a musician yeah oh um gurdjieff 
Gurdjieff is a, um, was a Sufist from Syria mm-hmm. who uh, decided at a young age that he was not, um, uh, he, he did not accept the definition of reality that he was learned in education and in school. So he searched the world to find the truth. And he went to the deserts of Africa. He went to the, the Himalaya mountains. He would, he would walk for days, you know, to go up to a, uh, to find, a, you know, an old religious man who, uh, had the answer to the questions that he was looking for. And uh, he talks about, uh, you know, the powers of the mind and uh, alternate reality. And that uh, was a huge influence on me. Georges Gurdjieff, uh, uh, trying to remember the name of his, his book, In Search of Real- In Search of Reality. In Search of Reality, okay. Sounds like it's going to be a good read for me. Uh, speaking of, here's the next question. What is your favorite book? That book is my favorite book. All right. Let's see, is that the name go. of it? In search of, in search of the miraculous by P. D. Alspensky, in search of the miraculous. In search of the miraculous. Okay. Yeah, it deals deals with metaphysics. That's right up my alley. Um, okay, here's here's the next one. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? Ooh, it was not the Blues Brothers. Oh, yeah, I was going to say definitely not the Blues Brothers. Not the Blues Brothers. Oh wow. Ah, uh, I I never I, I never lasted through a movie that I didn't like. So I mean, I just turned it off, okay, and and, and tried to forget about it. So I guess I, I wish I had a better answer. <laughs> Maybe I should rephrase it. What's what's the movie you spent the least amount of time watching? That would have been that, the one. Yeah, yeah. I, I, many of them, uh, uh, the, like the violent movies, I usually like uh, check out of pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah, I'd rather have something sort of funny and mindless and uh, or or very dramatic and uh, uh, you know heartfelt and uh, yeah, uplifting and romantic yeah. is okay. You know, pretty girls, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, if you weren't a, uh, if you weren't a musician, what would you want to be? Uh, I wanted, I would be a, a, a psychotherapist. Okay. Sometimes I think being in a, uh, being I only a, got the bachelor's degree in psychology. So. Yeah. Yeah. Being, being the leader of a horn section is sometimes like being a psychologist. So, well, it, it, uh, degree in psychology has helped me dealing with musicians. Yeah, absolutely. Not, not necessarily guys like yourself, you know, who are intelligent and, uh, and well-read, but, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, some other more complicated musicians. Um, uh, well, I, I will accept that as a compliment, my friend. I, I meant as a compliment. All right. What's your favorite drink? Ooh, um, I like uh, vodka with a splash of dark rum and coconut water. Ooh. Yeah. That sounds lovely. It's a, it's a happy happy time during the pandemic, you know, happy hour. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There you, go. Um, you could have a dinner party and at this dinner party, you can invite any three living people, any three living people don't need to know them. Just invite them. Who would you want to have at your party? Oh, uh, Jerry Hay, Wayne Bergeron and, uh, Frank Green. Oh man. They. You'd have to have a fourth person. You have to invite me for that one. So okay, okay, those, 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 those are those are three great people right there, and 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 of course uh, you have Jerry bring the wine. Of course, I understand you're quite the, the wine uh, connoisseur as well. So I only have about seven hundred bottles downstairs. That's it. it yeah, it, yeah. It's been a, it's Jerry. Been a, Jerry Hay is uh, he's uh, he's the wine connoisseur. Oh yeah. my God, I, he posts stuff on Facebook. But, uh, it just blows me. Yeah. 
700 bottles. It has been a hard uh, pandemic for you. I can see already. Well, you know, you know, you don't want to run out. Exactly. <laughs> Some people are stockpiling guns, stockpile well, wine. I have, I have, I have, like I said, I have uh, uh, seven more trumpets down there. I have two dozen New York Bach trump, trombones and, and, you know, flutes, piccolos, saxophones, uh, uh, tubas. You're, you're, you're good to go. Piles, yeah. Yeah. You want to run out. All right. So uh, same thing. You, you, you're having this dinner party. You've got those three wonderful people with you. You've got three extra chairs, and you're going to fill those chairs with any three people from history. Wow. Wow. Oh, man. Well, I guess Plato, right? Okay. And um, wow. Uh, and uh, well, Freddie Hubbard. And uh, wow. Wow. Uh Irby Green. Okay, man. That would be a fun one. I, I'm, I'm sure that, that Plato would sit in on, on, uh, on something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, lacquer plated or raw? I'm sorry? Lacquer plated or raw? Lacquer plated or raw? Well, B- Bill Reichenbach told me years ago, and he's right, that the instrument sounds the best with no lacquer at all. But then when it starts getting rusty, then it becomes a problem. So uh, I take the, I, I take the lacquer because it's practical. You can just wipe it off and it, and it stays, uh, stays there. Um, I, but I, Bill, Bill, Bill Watchers passed away. He was a good friend of mine and uh, I called up his wife. She needed money. So I bought his trombone. Mm. It was exactly the same as my horn. Exactly the same everything except his was gold plated. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I played it for a few months and one day my wife said, I was playing and she says, play your other horn. I put, went back to my other regular horn and she says, you sound better on your own horn. And I realized that, um, the gold plating made the horn darker and that my real sound is more on the bright sound. You know, I'm more of an R and B rock trombone player. And, uh, uh so I was, I was working too hard to try to, to get that sound out of Bill's horn. Mm-hmm. You know, Bill's sound was a it was a different sound. So right. um, I ended up selling that to um, uh, 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 a, a good friend of mine. I think it's kind of a secret that he has it, but um, for the same price I paid for it because he's a good friend of mine. But uh, you know, the horn is still being played, and uh, and uh, you know, the guy's putting out a new album like uh, next week. So oh, that's uh, it's in a good place. It's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. It, there's still music coming out of it. So absolutely that's what we absolutely. want all right um what's your greatest fear wow uh well if i walked into a session and couldn't play the part okay you're gonna be granted one superpower what would it be oh wow uh x-ray vision uh you can get yourself in a lot of trouble with that, my friend. <laughs> well, <laughs> see some stuff that you wouldn't see. Yeah, that's true. Uh, see some stuff you don't want to see. <laughs> that too. That too. Um, what aspect of uh, trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? Wow. Um, high notes. Okay. And what aspect do you feel is the most underrated? Well, actually, getting a good sound. I think is underrated uh, 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 a lot. I can't, but uh, you know, like Wayne, Jerry, uh, 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 Frank, I mean, these guys get a good sound, yeah. but you know, outside of the, the, the upper echelon, 
Uh, I think people sacrifice sound quality to 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 do other things. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, we talk, just mentioned high notes. You know, people will sacrifice sound to be able to hit the high notes. I know a, a friend of mine who will rena- remain nameless, uh, who, who has a bit of a name, like plays a, a tiny, like a 15, it's like a 15E kind of mouthpiece, custom made, but very, very small circle, very shallow. And I, I, like, why do you play that mouthpiece? He says, because I don't have to practice. And he still hit the high notes. Yeah. So that's that's kind of what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, to go back... Uh, uh, Frank Zappa wrote a song called The Black Page and it was about that fear of walking into a session and you couldn't play the part. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, and, and I, I'm a huge Frank Zappa fan and uh, I, Yeah, I was on the road with him in 1972. I did three tours with him. Yeah, and you were in the what, uh, the Live in New York? It was, uh, uh, that was yeah, that was later. That was uh, much later. Uh, uh, 1978, I think, mm-hmm. with the Brecker Brothers, Lou yeah. Marini, Ronnie Cuber. Yeah, uh, and we played the Black Page. I played the piccolo part on the Black Page on that on that concert. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, but uh, yeah, uh, and I I would I, I took the gig. I was playing with Frank, and he cut the band down, and, and I auditioned to play electric bass. And because he said next tour is, is gonna, just going to be a six piece band, and Bruce Fowler is going to be the only horn player. He says you want to audition to play bass, and I, yeah, okay. So I auditioned, and I and I didn't hear from Frank for about three weeks. Got a call from Blood, Sweat, and Tears. We, can you be here tomorrow? Chuck Winfield's leaving the band, you know. So I left town, and Frank called. The day I left, Frank called to say I had the job playing electric bass with Jean-Luc Ponty and George Duke. Oh, four my tours, gosh. Four tours of Europe and a tour of Japan for double the money that Blood, Sweat, and Tears was going to pay me. Oh. But I never looked back. I recommended Tom Fowler, who was Bruce Fowler's brother. Right. Great bass player. Yeah. Played, sounded great with Frank. Frank loved him. Played with him for many years. I never looked back. Yeah, yeah. Well... You know that you, you were on the path that you needed to be on, so that's that's all we can say. Um, all right, um, all right. Well, this this actually ties in good with this question. Um, you granted the ability to go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? If I could go back in time, hmm? give to, you, to find out. Just you're going to give your 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 today. Tom Bones Malone today goes back and give give a uh, little Tommy some advice about uh, about music. After all your years of experience, what would be the advice you'd give your younger self? Oh, practice, practice. I was I was raised on a farm in South Mississippi from age eleven, and I, I wanted to get out of there, so I practiced four or five hours a day because I I somehow knew that my meal ticket, my airplane ticket, out of Mississippi was going to be music. And so I practice all the time. Okay. Um, and while you're back there, you're going to give your younger self one piece of advice about life. Oh, same one as before. Be nice to everybody. Be nice to everybody. That's good. My mother told me that. That I think that's the best advice anyone could ever give. Um, and so here's our final question. Uh, Tom, what do you want your legacy to be? He was a nice guy. There you go. It's just that simple. It is just that simple. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being a guest on, uh, on my podcast. I really, really appreciated your time. And, uh, you know, one thing that we did not talk about was, uh, 
your recovery from from cancer, and uh, that's something that you know uh, I've had conversations with Wayne and Jerry. You know, being a cancer survivor myself, uh, that's so important. So, uh, do you have any like kind of uh, parting words that you like to give to anyone who's who's you know dealing with uh, the specter of cancer in their life uh, right now? Any advice that you could give? Well, uh, uh, look for the symptoms, and uh, and and don't put it off. You know, my, mine was mine was prostate cancer. Get a PSA test; that'll tell tell you where you had. Uh, uh, my dad died of prostate cancer. Three of his brothers. So it's a family it's a family thing. So I was uh, sort of like when I started having symptoms, I immediately moved ahead, and I and uh, one hundred thirty six thousand dollars later, I'm cured. Uh, and David Letterman Insurance covered all but nine hundred dollars of it. They. Uh, they, uh, uh, it's a new procedure where they microscopically inject radioactive seeds into the tumors in, in, within the prostate gland. I mean, we're talking about micro- microscopic stuff. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, they, um, they in, in inject this radioactive material that eventually uh, that radioactivity goes away. Half-life is about 85 days. So uh, uh, iodine-127, I think it is. And uh, um, uh, I'm cured. Awesome. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Uh, uh, and um, yeah, Wayne and Jerry, we're all, and yourself, cancer survivors. Uh, don't put it off. Yeah. The sooner you act on it, the better. Look for the symptoms. Yeah. I, I lucked out on mine. I uh, didn't have the symptoms. Uh, my father died of prostate cancer as a result of prostate cancer, some other complications. And, and uh, my PSA, the, blood test, the PSA test, my PSA was like 15. Wow. Yeah, it was nuts. So uh, caught it just in time. And, you know, so, it, you know, if, if I 100 percent with you, if you have symptoms or if it's in your family, if you're you know high risk, uh, just get the test done. You know, well, after after a certain age, like I said, I'm I'm going to be 74 next next month, and uh, uh, you you, you got to have a blood test like every year, I think, when you get to be my age. So you want to catch this stuff before it you know before it happens. Yeah. If you catch it before you have symptoms, all the better. Absolutely. I mean, you're uh, exactly you're you're a good example of that. Yeah, well, and you're still here. Yeah, I just had my uh, my checkup yesterday, and uh, you're number 12 free. So I'm, wow. I'm excellent doing, doing good. So I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm happy for you too, my friend. So, and I'm happy for you joining us today on the Trumpet Gurus Hang and, uh, you know, make sure that you share this episode because there's some great information and some tremendous nuggets. Go back, listen to it five, six, seven times. Uh, and uh, make sure that uh, when, whenever uh, someone asks you where you heard it from, give Tom his, his dues. He's a good man. He's a, a fountain of knowledge and uh, one of the most genuinely nice guys that I've, I've had a, a privilege of, of meeting uh, as a, in the course of doing this podcast. So Tom, I look forward to being able to actually sit down with you in person sometime and maybe having a, a glass of vodka, uh, dark rum and uh, coconut water. Uh, with you and a cup of coffee with Frank Green, and uh, we'll all get together and and, and just enjoy life together. 
Oh, well, it was. I thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Oh, absolutely. The pleasure is all mine. So as always, folks, thanks for hanging out with us and we'll catch you on another episode. Until then, peace and slide grease. We're out.